Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt. We're here at Waverly Country Club with Colleen Kinney. It's February 7th, 2023. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and the first question to start things off is why wine? I fell into the wine industry uh, when I graduated from college. I had been in hospitality as a side job and I worked for a company at the time that heavily believed from promoting within and I became a beverage manager at Bartoma in Chicago. They placed me there, so I had no wine knowledge at that point. And the entire list was Italian, so it was quite the challenge to learn Italian and learn wine at the same time. And soon enough, I fell in love with the stories and had my, of course, aha wine moment there. And from there, I had a bartender who had just passed his certified sommelier certification. He's like, do it. And I was like, I can't take that test. Are you kidding me? And he's like, I did it. And he was in his 50s at the time. He's like, if I can do it at my age, then you can do it at your age. And so I started to study, and I became a sommelier. Let's back up for a second and talk about life before wine. You mentioned being in Chicago. Tell me about uh, your upbringing. Where were you born and raised, and uh, what did you do before college? I was born and raised in Chicago, in the city, in the northwest side. Uh, My family was not into wine. I would say they're beer and just kind of everyday drinkers. My grandma used to always open a bottle of champagne on Thanksgiving and Christmas as a palate cleanser before dinner. So once she would kind of get settled in cooking, Uh, She would open up that bottle once our family started to arrive. She'd always give me a sip. And yeah, that was really all of my wine exposure. Uh, Played sports throughout my life and went to Catholic school and then went to the University of Iowa. What what brought you there? I was pre-med at the time and Iowa had a really great program and it had the full college experience out of all of the colleges that I had applied to and it ended up being exactly what I wanted, minus the cold winter weather. So as you're, you mentioned, kind of you're, you're working in hospitality as part of that. Tell me about getting into hospitality and kind of your first experiences in that. Sure. So I think most of my friends in college were servers or bartenders, and so I had always had an interest in food. My dad was a huge cook and so just seeing what that was like on a professional level. So I ended up becoming a cocktail waitress at a resort and casino there and over the summer I would work on the golf course. So I did that throughout college which was great because I had I could have a really flexible schedule and I could go on breaks and come back and it was just a really great college job. So I was pre-med and then that of course didn't work out and kind of got lost trying to figure out where to go next and was just like, I gotta get out of school. So I switched to business and graduated and I thought maybe I would combine business and medicine and do like pharmaceutical sales or something. And I started working at Wrigley Field and that was such a fun job. 
and we believe about promoting from within. So I saw a path there and took it. Wrigley Field, that's awesome. What was your original role at Wrigley Field? My original role was a bartender, and it was so fun. They weren't really good at the time. They were starting to get good. They had just, um, my last season there, I believe they brought up Javier Baez, and the excitement was starting that, oh my god, we're actually maybe really going to do this. <laughs> That's amazing. So you mentioned the kind of promotion from within and getting put into a job that you were not really necessarily prepared for. So tell me about your initial kind of impressions of wine, learning Italian wine, learning Italian, um, and what you thought of wine as you got started. So Bartoma, there was a joint relationship with Tony and Kathy Montuano and Levy Restaurants. And so Kathy uh, was a really great first leader and, and mentor in wine and she took me under her wing and introduced me to a lot of the representatives and so many of the wine representatives there had worked in the industry for so long and so they really helped me and I fell in love with the story. And you mentioned this, the story obviously that's a, a draw for a lot of people. Tell me about some of the stories you remember from like the early days. Were there, were there specific stories or specific wines that got you really excited? So my aha moment was a Pio Cesare Barolo. And I remember sitting there and it was Tony and Kathy, I think had just come back from Italy. And the person who was training me, he was on his way out and everyone is just going gaga over this wine. And I remember tasting it and it was this explosion of flavor in my mouth. And I was like, what is this? Like, I should, I should like this? I'm supposed to like this? Uh, Eventually, I'm pretty sure I will, but at this moment, this is really overwhelming. It's interesting. I like that. It's interesting. Like knowing you should like something and not yeah. quite feeling it yet. So tell me about from that, from that moment, uh, tell me about your kind of your wine path up to like starting formal wine education. Yeah. So while I was there, I obviously got to taste a lot and everyone was really generous with um, helping me learn about different regions and so my most of my training was self-guided when i was in chicago i did basic study guild psalm wine bible um, a lot of the just wine books and then i moved here in august of 2015 and i moved here to become an intern so i was an intern at pamplin family winery i uh, was specifically on vineyards, but I did a little bit of cellar stuff that first harvest, and I became a certified sommelier after that. Uh, lots of tasting groups, and yeah, just took the test, and so a lot of it's been self-guided study, if you will. So that's a big leap to go from Chicago to coming out to Oregon to be an intern, so tell me how that came to be, and what were your impressions of the production side of things? So I passed my uh, introductory sommelier exam in June of 2015, and I had been looking to leave Chicago, and when I passed that exam, I was like, what do I do with this? So I started looking on Guildsom at jobs, and harvest interning popped up, which then led me to winejobs.com. And I applied for harvest jobs in uh, Oregon, Washington, and California. 
and I didn't think that anything was going to come of it. I had replied to 20 jobs, and it was late. It was probably late July, so a little late in the game to be securing a harvest job. And I get this email from Robert Henry at Pamplin, and it's, uh, hey, do you want to do a phone interview? And I said, okay. And so I talked to him for maybe 20 minutes. I, I'll never forget it. I was, I wasn't in my, I was in a high rise, and the reception was a little spotty. So I'm, I'm sitting on this park bench in the park by the lake, hoping that, you know, some family or group of people doesn't walk by and make all this noise. And he goes, well, if you want the job, you have to get out here in a week. And I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to see what I can do, and I'll let you know. So I, I called my landlord, and he said, you're free of your lease as long as you find someone to take your lease and there was weirdly a storage unit on the top floor of the building, it was like the 54th floor and there was a big enough space to fit all my stuff in it besides obviously anything I was taking with me and then the last challenge of course is to tell my parents who I completely blindsided, they were so shocked <laughs> that I was leaving and in that uh, amount of time so packed my stuff up and drove 36 hours across the country, got here, and it was beautiful. I remember um, I was driving through the gorge basically like all the way up um, in Washington like at sunrise, so then basically all the way down, and I remember calling one of my friends being like, I don't even know where I am. Like, this is the most, this is ridiculous. I, like, I've never even seen a picture of this before. Like, where am I? And so finally I had stopped, and I think I had pinpointed it somewhere around Lewis and Clark just to get out and see the river, um, that like little pull-off there. And got to Portland, and I remember seeing Portland uh, and the, the skyline, if you will. <laughs> uh, it's a classic Chicago thing yeah. to say. <laughs> seeing just the view, and I was like, this is where I want to be. And so I was like, okay, I'll just take it. Harvest is obviously temporary, so see if I like it here. And I decided to stay after that. It's just, for me, it's just so beautiful and there's so much to do. And I was looking to get out of Chicago because I didn't love winter. So while it rains here, it's much better than a lot of snow and below zero temperatures. And I, I feel like Chicago is very sports culture and eating and drinking. And I was just trying to do more than eat and drink, which is funny because I'm still in this industry, but <laughs> there's hiking and biking and, and many more things to do in the Pacific Northwest. So tell me about that harvest then. Uh, obviously, uh, first, first time doing a lot of those things. What, what was it like? What were your impressions of growing and making wine? I was in awe. Um, so Pamplin, um, well, they're based in the Lamp Valley, they're um, in Sherwood, so they source from all over Washington. So I was all over. I was in Red Mountain, I was in Walla Walla, um, Horse Heaven Hills, and it was this amazing educational experience to be able to walk all those vineyards. So it was just eye-opening of this whole other world that I had never seen, and topography, of course, <laughs> coming from the Midwest, <laughs> that was... Um, something new, driving you know through mountain roads or vineyards on gravel. I was like white knuckling <laughs> for the first couple of weeks, and then I got used to it. So I was really impressed at how hard of work it is, and just seeing all the vineyard workers, you know, out there in 100 degrees, and they're planting and they're drilling stakes, and it it was an eye-opening experience mm -hmm. over how much work 
really goes into the process of making wine. So you mentioned that Portland was a draw for you immediately and you, you were thinking post-harvest you're going to stay. So harvest wraps up. What, was, what were you thinking at that point in terms of what you wanted to do next? I was praying for a long harvest because <laughs> the longer the harvest was, uh, the longer I was employed. But uh, that was a warm year, so everything came in pretty quick. Um, I was done, I think, the first week of October. And then I was just like, all right, I'll find a restaurant job. And it was really competitive at that point. Um, so I found a job as a server bartender that grew at Nicoletta's table in Lake Oswego. And at that point, what were you thinking like you wanted to do? Like you had, you had, you had your SOM education, you had one harvest under your yeah. belt. What were you sort of hoping for? At that point, um, in a way, I had sworn off management. So working for a, a corporation is, I think, challenging in its own right. There's a lot of processes, and there's a reason for that. And I had worked a lot, so I, I didn't have this idea of what it could be like to work for someone smaller. I had thought all restaurants were the same. And especially in Chicago, it's a lot more cutthroat. Mm -hmm. So coming here, it was a breath of fresh air, um, and I met, I made an amazing community. So I was looking for community, and I had wanted to have a list again. I missed that interaction with just different people and meeting people from you know who are coming in from Italy, and I I missed that connection. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned starting to build your community. Tell me about finding finding people and starting to build a network in a place you hadn't hadn't been for very long. I got really lucky. Um, there was a couple tasting groups that were just starting as I moved here, and I'm still friends with a lot of those people. So um, yeah, I met people through tasting groups, through volunteering and work, and my roommate at the time. So I. I, it was almost like it was meant to be. I've, I've seen people who've moved here and they couldn't make friends, and I just kind of snapped in. So you mentioned missing having a list and sort of that, having that be something you were working back towards. So tell me about the path through from first restaurant job post harvest towards back towards where you are now. Yeah. So I passed my sommelier certification. I started at Nicoletta's in November of 15, and then I passed in February of 2016. And once I passed, uh, Shari, the owner there, had turned over the list to me, and we built uh, a list that was comprehensive of every region in Italy. And there was essentially nothing that on that list that wasn't from Italy. There was like a tiny bit of Oregon Pinot Noir, but. Um, she really wanted it to be a representation of Italy. They had opened another restaurant, Nicolette and Beppe's in the Pearl, and um, that list was fully Italian as well. So for, I think it was probably almost two years, I think I left February of, I don't, know, I don't even know time anymore, was that <laughs> 17, 18 I left, um, and then I went to Nostrana. So before we get to Nostrana, tell me about having a list again and uh, at that point, being a certified sommelier, what was it you wanted to sort of implement into a list that are, as you were building it or as you were kind of tweaking it to, to, to your style, 
what was important to you about a wine list at that point? What was important to me was just an accurate representation of the regions that the varietals that were getting put on that list were representative of what, yeah, what, what those regions were, what their most popular varietals were, and not what came in internationally to get 100 points. So that was my main focus, and putting, having a mix of classic producers versus smaller producers that not everyone had seen of, so there were those items on the list that we could hand sell and say, hey, have you heard of this person? Because in that area, there are a lot of people who are well-traveled. So they do like to see, oh my gosh, I've been to this winery before. Um, like I remember Vigna Maggio being on, um, we had it on by the glass for a while and people, and people would get so excited to see it because they had been there. But there's also this excitement over, oh, hey, why don't you try this bottle? Or maybe here's this wine, you like Nebbiolo, but how about we try it from um, Lombardy? And you could see the variance in what uh, Nebbiolo can do. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I'm curious, your what what was the what sold a wine? What was the most important thing as you were selling a wine? Was it was it story? Was it reputation? Was it score? Was it something else? What did you feel people most responded to as you were selling wine? I don't. I never pick or sell wines by score. I don't pay attention to them. The only time I pay attention to a score is if someone tells me that hey, this wine got 100 or whatever points, and can you get it? (laughs) Um, Sometimes I'll take a look at it just to get ahead of what I think someone's going to ask me for, but other than that, I don't don't look for score. For me, it's, is this wine indicative of the varietal? Does it, if it's Barbera, does it taste like Barbera, or are you trying to make it taste like Cab? Okay, that's not a direct... Are you trying to make it taste like Pinot Noir? Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe more stylistically correct there. But are you? Is this taste like Barbera? Does it taste like the terroir, if you will? So that is what I think is most important. And when you're looking at it from the, you mentioned obviously story was a big part of what got you excited about wine. Did you find there were particular kinds of stories that really resonated with people when they were buying wines? Absolutely. I think anytime you're selling wine, the story matters. Um, you can talk about flavor profiles. Uh, you know, you could t- say, oh, this is higher in acid, which acid you would never use on the floor, but <laughs> this is more flowers or this is more earth- earthy people tend to gravitate towards. But overall, I think what sells wine is stories. If, if I give someone three wines and I start telling someone about a story of one of them, I would say nine times out of ten, they sit, they pick the wine that I've told them the story about. So let's pick it up at Nostrana then. Uh, what caused you, what was the kind of the purpose for going there and what was uh, your role at Nostrana? I, uh, I left because I wanted to be part of the Portland restaurant scene. It was really exciting, um, I think, at that time. And it was really hard to find a job. <laughs> so it was, again, the, the pool was just, it was so competitive. And um, I had interviewed at Nostrana for three months before I got the job. And so getting the job was really excited. I think so many people had told me about Kathy Wims along my journey and that I should go work for her. So it had, Nostrana had been on my radar for a long time. And when I finally got the offer, it was, I was really excited to be part of 
a restaurant that was so well-known and respected. Mm -hmm. What were your initial impressions of it once you got there and what was your, like I say, what was kind of the role you were filling? My initial impression of Nostrano was, it was, I was impressed. <laughs> it was, you know, a, a real restaurant that was doing, you know, big city work, if you will. It, it, I kind of felt like I snapped in. It felt like a natural fit. I was, I was and still am to this day so impressed with that kitchen. I mean, everything comes from scratch. They have not a huge workspace and the amount of volume of food that they put out is truly incredible. So as you started working there, then um, tell me about getting comfortable with a new list and um, what you were kind of what your what you brought to the place. Yeah, so Austin Bridges um, is uh, the wine director there. He was the wine director um, when I first got there, and so I saw a whole new side of Italy. I would say the approach is more sustainable and natural focused at Nostrano. There's still so many classics on the list, so it was great to see a different approach to Italy and to hear so much more talk about farming. I think that being at Nostrano really opened my eyes to this conversation about farming and how this grape is being, or you know, how it's being grazed, if you will. Mm -hmm. So what comes next for you then, after after uh, Nostrana? Uh, so the pandemic hits, and we don't know what's going to happen. Our restaurant's going to survive, and this was before a st we even knew that a stimulus was a thing. Uh, so I had always said that I would work harvest whenever the opportunity presented itself in my lifetime, and I felt that this was a great time to go work harvest because who knew what was gonna happen next and I needed a job. So if I was out of work for a couple months, then at least I knew that I would be in work in a few months. So I had interviewed with one winery and they had tipped me off that um, none of the interns that normally come over from France could get a visa. and. I yeah, um, so I reached out to um, someone I knew and I said, hey, can you send my, can you send my interest over to Rotor Estate? And she said, yes, of course. And within a week, I got an email back um, from Jeff, the winemaker at Scharfenberger. So Rotor and Scharf, Rotor owns Scharfenberger. And he said, hey, um, we've got room. You're gonna have to brush up on your Spanish, but if you wanna come, then um, we'll put you up. And I said, okay. So it had the way that it had worked out was perfect because I guess they had learned just the week before that they wouldn't have their interns. So the timing was serendipitous. And where's that winery? That winery is in a very small town, Philo, California in the Anderson Valley. So tell me about that harvest then. That harvest was a really, it was such a, I look back on it and I can't believe that I even left of August of 2020 to go work harvest. It was challenging in its right, right? We're all 
um, so scared in a way and all masked up all the time and there's really not as much social activity. Harvest can be this really fun social time which was fine. Um, my roommates and I really dug into that area and that part of the country. We went tasting, you know, all up and down the area there. We'd go down to Sonoma. I had friends in Napa. So it was this really cool experience of just diving into the wines in those areas and yeah, eating what we could. And what made you want to be there for that harvest in that part of the world? I wouldn't say that it wasn't, I mean, I wanted to work a sparkling harvest, so that was what was really important to me, was that I wanted to have a sparkling harvest under my belt. So at the end of that, then, um, still not a whole lot of certainty going on in the world at that point, at the end of harvest of 2020. So what came next for you, and what were you sort of, what was the world looking like to you at that point? I had this moment there that I feel like there was a lot of avenues that I was considering taking at that time and it was one of them was do I really want to do winemaking full-time and I didn't want to this is no offense to any winemaker out there but I didn't want to scrape my way through I think it's really hard to work your way up as a winemaker and I have so much respect and admiration for winemakers and I I didn't want to hate it. I just, I love it and harvest is so fun and I didn't want to end up, um, yeah, resenting it and being like, I never want to drink wine again. I was afraid of, cause I'm just so passionate and, uh, and yeah, I just like love being part of it. So having this experience where I, I was solely focused on wine and being in the cellar, way past harvest that was a really fast harvest we had everything in before Labor Day and I was there through the end of October so I had this experience of being in a cellar which was great and I got to see so much finding and filtering and just so many parts of the process that I would have never seen had I not been there for so long but I had this epiphany of I, I don't think that I want this full time and I remember um, Robert from Pamplin saying that whenever he looks at a resume, if he sees people hopping around for harvest, that they just kind of get the harvest high and they don't ever want to settle. And so I was like, oh, maybe I just like harvest. <laughs> so I realized I didn't want to do that full time. And I started interviewing for essentially anything that was open. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I interviewed here. I had actually interviewed here the year before, almost the exact same time for the exact same position, but I didn't get it. And then that person had left, and so I had the HR person's contact. And I reached out and I said, "Hey, I'm interested still. If you know that didn't come to fruition, but we're cool. Um, can I? Am I still eligible?" And they brought me in for an interview almost right away. What was it about here, besides just looking for anything, was there anything particular about here that was exciting to you? And what did you sort of see the role as, as becoming as well? What did you see the role you were going to take? So when I was at Nicoletta's, I had heard about Waverly for a long time. And it was on my drive, driving down 43 and seeing it. And it seemed like this mystery. 
and I don't know, I had, I had always had my eye on it, and it was like, I want to be there. It seems exciting. People spoke so highly of Waverly, and I saw a little bit of the list before I got in, and I realized that I could run a, a large wine program here, uh, a worldly wine program. So that was what one of my goals was leaving Harvest, was I had been in the Italian world for so long that I wanted to connect with people in my backyard and work with people in California. I have, I've been to Napa multiple times, so I was hoping to run a worldly wine list. So when I first landed here, my role was uh, wine ambassador and private event captain. It's very wordy. It took me a minute to remember what it was. <laughs> and after about four months here, I took on my role now. So after all that time spent with Italian focused wine lists, what was it like having that kind of the worldly wine list finally? It was exciting. It was, I, so at Nostrana, um, I was bar director in EGM, so there's just, there's wine everywhere there, and there's so many winemakers, and I, I didn't feel like I missed out a lot, and it was really great to, you know, be like, I'm back, <laughs> and see all my friends again, and get back into um, a, a buying role, but little did I know what the COVID challenges were. There's, it was really challenging to get started again and just with all the shipping delays and I feel like we're finally heading into a, a, an easier path or you know we're starting to get back to we figured out all the shipping challenges and we can have wine in stock and ready to ship. It was a scary couple of years about forgetting wine, forgetting wine to a place at a time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell me about uh, approaching a wine list like this that was established but wanting to put your own mark on it as well. For me, it's about the members here and learning what they liked and what they wanted. When I came in, the list was primarily Chardonnay and Cabernet focused. And I was trying to get a grasp of, is this really what members wanted? And there was a lot of questions of, hey, we've lost a lot of allocations. Can we get them back? Um, I, I don't see any variety. So it was learning what members really wanted and having an idea of what they wanted and then bringing that here. Uh, this list is pretty classic. Um, every once in a while I get to the question of what's orange wine. And so um, I haven't brought in any yet, but I'll probably bring in a little, couple bottles just for the curiosity of those who are curious. But. Overall, I, it's not about me being here. It's about giving them what they want and sh showing them smaller producers or, or finding out, hey, I like this style and then bringing in newer items for them. We have over the summer pizza and pinot every Thursday night. So we have uh, wineries here every Thursday. So that's a really great way to show the membership like, hey, have you heard of this person or have you seen this wine? And to get them excited because they can taste through. So you mentioned sort of trying to bring in some, some sort of newer things to a fairly classic list. And also, you know, ha ha you want to observe what, what people want and what, they, and what they want on the list. So tell me about how you discover wine at this point. What are you looking for when you're looking for something to add to this list potentially? Um, is it people coming to you? Are you out seeking certain types of wines or certain types of producers? It's both. Um, still working on getting a lot of our allocations back and getting some of the rarer wines of the world. 
and it's a lot of listening. I know there's a push to expand the list right now. I think part of that is bringing in uh, more selections from what we have right now and then expanding more internationally. Our members are really wine savvy and they know what they like and they, they know a lot about wine, so really trying to please them. Mm -hmm. What kind of challenges does that present for you to have a, such a savvy uh, customer base? I love it. I, I don't think that there is any downside to it. I have so many fun conversations. Uh, members are really generous. They'll you know kind of share something special if they have it open. So I don't I don't think that there's a downside to it, except that I have to maybe be careful when I'm on the floor that I don't misspeak. Someone might be correcting me. <laughs> So you talked about the last couple of years and all of the challenges of, of, all, of the, all of the challenges. So as you're looking at things now uh, and things are starting to kind of balance out a little bit, what are you sort of anticipating for the, the, year, to, the year or years to come um, in terms of where this, is, this program is going to go? I think this program is only going to continue to get better. And part of this seller um, wasn't kept up with, of course, because of COVID. No one knew what was going to happen. So it's really just adding to the collection that's here um, and making it, I would say, like any of the great lists that are out there, hopefully getting up to that caliber. I think of, you know, like the ringside and things like that, just kind of getting up to par with hopefully some of the, the great restaurants that are around. What about as you look ahead for yourself now in this role and, and otherwise, what are you looking ahead to sort of professional goals, personal goals uh, on the horizon? I would say professional goals are to keep on keeping on. I'm, I'm really content right now. Um, I'm pretty involved with Salute. I'll be a captain this year at IPNC. So trying to continue to build community and help those around. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, obviously, you're not focused primarily on Oregon wine or only on Oregon wine, but I'm curious about your impressions of Oregon wine, having worked in it and around it for as long as you have. Um, what was the what were your initial thoughts on the wines here and on the, on the people making them, and how, if at all, have, have those thoughts changed? Having an Italian palate and coming here, it took a while to adjust to Oregon Pinot. So. Um, it's been an interesting journey that now I, I fully embrace it, having lived here for almost eight years now. I think Oregon is really conscious about the impact that it has on the earth and farming and trying to be sustainable or what's with sustainability or practicing um, more biodynamic practices and. I think that's a huge focus that I love about Oregon and how grassroots it still feels. We'll see how that continues. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. On that note then, what do you see as you look ahead for the future of Oregon wine? Oregon's in a really interesting place. We've had these challenging years where it feels like everyone just had their head down. We had these fires, you know, it's like COVID and there's these fires and no one can travel to sell wine. And then we have frost and there's glass shortage and there's so, been so many challenges that it, 
feels in a way that we've been in survival mode, but at the same time it's been interesting because there has been this interest from the outside and there's these big names that are coming into Oregon. Um, when I travel now and I say I'm from Oregon, it's interesting that people will be like, oh, there's Pino, or oh, the Lamp Valley, and I'm like, oh, you're catching on, okay. And before I'd be like, what's in Oregon? Is there snow? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that Oregon is really having an identity and starting to have an impact outside of the West Coast. Mm -hmm. You mentioned obviously the challenges, the challenging harvests and growing seasons of the past few years. Um, as you as you sort of look ahead, is is Oregon equipped, I guess, from your perspective, to handle challenges of that magnitude? Yeah, I, the beauty of Oregon is that it's community. It's a win for a win for one winery is a win for everyone. Or you know, I don't think anybody any winery would intentionally leave someone behind. So a win for or better said, a win for one winery is a win for the valley. No mm -hmm. one wants to leave anyone behind. I, I feel like everyone is working towards this goal of promoting Oregon wine and putting us on the map, which it seems like it's working. So uh, you obviously talked about um, the sort of the change in the, uh, your work here versus a work before in terms of the kind of the more worldly approach to wine here. So uh, before I get to my last question here, I'm curious, has your approach to building a list changed now that your sort of the, the, the globe of your wine here has changed? No, my, my main focus has always been um, if this is Cabernet or if this is Pinot Noir, does it taste like Cabernet or does it taste like Pinot Noir? And that's really important and does it taste like the vintage, you know? 2020 is going to taste different from 2021. There's a lot of smoke taint, but do you put that 2020 on the list. I have I have one just to show uh, members what that's like because people don't believe that it's real. So we had a bottle um, that we had got for something, or I can't remember tasting, and I had started to show it around to staff like, hey, this is smoke taint, and it was like this mind-blowing experience. But I can remember the first time that I had tasted smoke taint being like, whoa, you can really taste, you know, the smoky, charry, who knows what was burning around this. So for me, it's always just been, does this wine taste the way it's supposed to from that region, from that vintage, and trying to keep an eye on producers and highlighting some of the smaller ones as well, and not just staying super mainstream. Okay, then last question for you. Uh, advice for people or words of wisdom for people interested in getting into the wine industry? Find some friends to study with, <laughs> to help you along. Find a community wherever that wherever you are. Um, I know Guildsom has communities, or it's a Facebook community, or whatever it is. Find people to study with. It it helps you. It helps you to talk about wine to resonate what you're whether you're reading and writing and then to talk about it you have to talk through it to be able to really understand uh, what's happening and be patient it's, it's a journey I don't regret a minute of it but um, there was someone I was talking to this summer and they're like what do I do I want to keep going and I want you know this job and I'm like 
just gotta keep keep going, keep going, keep pushing. Um, it just takes time. Good advice, I appreciate it, thank you. All the questions that I have for you today, anything I didn't ask that I should have asked, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? Um, I don't think so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for yeah. your time, for your hospitality in this beautiful space. Of course. Sharing your story with us, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay, cool. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.